1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review. All things Zoomer, worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. This week marked the 100th anniversary of the Armenian Genocide. Approximately a million and a half people died at the hands of the Ottoman Turks. Almost as tragic as the event itself, is the fact that for the past century, many countries have refused to acknowledge that this was a genocide. That is changing. Today I'll be joined by Armenian historian and author Ronald Suni. Plus, it was budget week, both provincially and federally. The federal budget brought changes for Zoomers that CARP has been advocating for years. How will these new rules impact you? I'll crunch the numbers with Lauren Lebo, partner at Stern-Cohen. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Over the last few weeks, we've been following the court case of Henry Rayens, a 78-year-old former Iowa state legislator facing sexual abuse charges for allegedly having sex with his wife while she lived in a home for dementia patients. This Wednesday, a jury found him not guilty on all charges. The case sparked an international discussion about the capacity of people living with Alzheimer's or dementia to consent to sex, an issue that will only get larger as more and more people are diagnosed with these diseases. Many Hollywood insiders have spoken out about the lack of roles for older women. Now, award-winning actress Meryl Streep is taking steps to fix that problem. This week, she revealed she'll help fund a screenwriting lab specifically for women over 40. The lab will be overseen by New York women in film and television, where Streep is an honorary board member. 102-year-old Alice Barker has become an internet sensation. In the 1930s and 40s, she was a line dancer with the Harlem Renaissance. She performed alongside some of the biggest stars in show business, Gene Kelly, Frank Sinatra, and Bojangles Robinson. However, she had never seen video footage of herself dancing until this week, for her 102nd birthday, she got to relive her youthful past. Her friend, filmmaker David Schuff, tracked down videos of her performances in what was known as Soundies, short musical films. Here's her reaction to watching herself dance for the first time.
0: Fabulous.
1: Oh. oh.
0: Fabulous to see this.
2: Skin my. I
1: love you. Lois Lillianstein, one of the trio of entertainers who formed Sharon Lois & Bram, has died. Sharon Lois & Bram's TV series, The Elephant Show, ran from 1984 to 1989, with each episode ending with their signature song, Skinnamarink. It's a song many Zoomers sang to their children, and now their children are singing it to the next generation. The trio were awarded the Order of Canada in 2002. And just last year, the city of Toronto named a public playground after them. Lillianstein had been diagnosed with a rare form of cancer last October. She passed away this week at the age of 78. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week's federal budget featured a laundry list of changes... Zoomers have been demanding. The key points are lower mandatory RIF withdrawals and higher limits for tax-free savings accounts. It means that older people can preserve and even grow their savings while paying less tax. Accountant Lauren Lebo of Stern Cohen dropped by our studios to crunch the numbers. Let's take an average portfolio and let's crunch the numbers. Okay. So say you have half a million dollars, $500,000 saved up in your RSP. What does this change mean?
2: Well, in the year after you convert to a RIF, under the old system, you were required to withdraw approximately $36,900 out of your RIF, and that would be fully taxable. Under the new system, the proposed, in the proposed budget, it's now reduced to $26,400. Uh huh. So it's about a 2% difference. And if the couple has a 35% tax rate, they would have less tax to pay, about $3,675.
1: Is that likely to push people into a lower tax bracket?
2: It could. And it could also affect the amount of the old age clawback.
1: Okay. So tell me about the age stipulation about a, a couple.
2: Yes. Um, at the point in time, When you have to convert your RSP into a RIF, and that is by the end of the year in which you turn 71, you are required to convert into a RIF, and then the RIF withdrawals can be based on either your age or your spouse's age. So if you have a younger spouse, you can choose to have the RIF withdrawals, the minimum withdrawals, based on your spouse's age. And if your spouse is, say, five years younger, you don't have to start withdrawing from your RIF for another five years.
1: That's huge.
2: That can be very uh, good for a lot of couples, yes. If they have other sources of retirement income and other non-registered plans, it's better to withdraw from a non-registered plan to live on because you're not taxed on that withdrawal, whereas every withdrawal from a RIF is fully taxable.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, so the older spouse has to convert it but doesn't have to take money out of it until... The younger spouse hits 71. These changes, how far do you think they'll go to preserving the capital in a RIF?
2: Well, it can have a significant impact on the amount of capital. I mean, you could say if the savings is about um, $10,500 a year, then you can preserve about $200,000 over 20 years. So it can be a significant amount.
1: Okay, so let's move on to tax-free savings accounts. Now, of course, uh, the government uh, nearly doubled the eligible amount from 5500 to 10000
2: Well, it's very important for everyone. If you have investments in non-registered plans, all the income in the plan is taxable, whether it's interest income, dividend income, from, or capital gains in your portfolio. By transferring these investments into a tax-free savings account... You do not pay any tax on the income in your tax-free savings account. So it builds up without having to be taxed.
1: Do you have any thoughts on how to combine, uh, in retirement, how to combine income from uh, the RIF, which is a taxable stream, and the tax-free savings account, which is a non-taxable stream?
2: Well, if you're fortunate enough to have various sources of income and you have your RIF and you have your non-registered portfolio And you have your tax-free savings account. The RIF is the last thing to withdraw from. So you you should only take out the minimum withdrawal from your RIF. The next thing you should take from is your non-registered portfolio. Because the income from that is being taxed. And then your tax-free savings account, you should leave that as long as possible as well. Because it's building up on a tax-free basis. And every year, you should make the transfer from your non-registered portfolio into your tax-free savings account to increase the amount of income that isn't being taxed.
1: Just to wrap things up, uh, what do you make of the situation for Zoomers after this budget?
2: Zoomers should take a good look at their retirement plans and a good look at their investments, make sure they're maximizing their contributions for their tax-free savings account. If they're approaching the age of 71, to start thinking about what they're going to do about their RSPs, making final contributions to their RSP before they turn, for the end of the year, they turn 71, and um, certainly consult a tax professional.
1: (laughs) Okay. Lauren Lebo, thanks so much. I've been speaking with accountant Lauren Lebo, a partner at Stern Cohen. I'm Libby Neimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. This week marked 100 years since the atrocities of the Armenian Genocide. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Armenian historian and professor Ronald Suni. Friday marked the 100th anniversary of the slaughter of 1.5 million Armenians by Ottoman Turks. A century later, Turkey still disputes it was a genocide, and even U.S. President Barack Obama is refusing to to formally acknowledge it as such. Canada made the acknowledgement back in 2004, but it was only in the last few weeks that the Pope, the European Parliament, and countries including Austria and Germany recognized the genocide, which affected the families of nearly every Armenian alive today. I reached Armenian historian Ronald Suni in Chicago.
3: If you, in fact, deny that 1915 constituted a genocide, indeed the first major genocide of this type, that is a targeted mass killing of a designated uh, ethno-religious group of a people, then you encourage all those sort of reactionary, nationalistic uh, forces in a country like Turkey or other countries that, in fact, will deny the history, will try to bury these facts. And if, in fact, you do recognize it, then you, in fact, are encouraging and supporting the more progressive forces in those countries that brave and... Uh, really courageous uh, Turkish and Kurdish activists and historians and journalists who have used the word uh, in defiance of their own government. So I think this is uh, any kind of recognition by the Pope, by the European Parliament, by any government is extraordinarily significant.
1: I've seen criticism from inside the Armenian community, which I'm sure you have seen, uh, which basically said that the focus on getting this, recognized as a genocide, has taken away from many, many other things and harmed the community and and also complained that people who were not focused on it were called, you know, self-hating Armenians or whatever. What, what What's your reaction to that?
3: Armenians are a very small people, you know, they're not that many of us. And, and there are what I would call uh, ethnic entrepreneurs, maybe policemen who guard the boundaries of the nation of the of the ethnicity and they are the ones who want to tell you who's in who's out who's a real armenian who's not etc and i have no truck with those people that's not interesting to me at all uh, the genocide is a very important thing almost every armenian family in the world in one way or another is affected by the genocide it's the moment april 24th or in the discussions about the genocide where all the different factions of armenians try to get together, it doesn't work always. It's a very it's a nation that's splintered in many ways, politically, culturally, in the homeland, in the diaspora. But it is that kind of moment. So the genocide is important. But those critics who are saying don't focus just on the genocide, they have a good point. What about the two thousand year history of our means? Why do we denigrate that? Why do we place that on a second level below that of this great tragedy, which we can't avoid, but is one episode, a big episode but one episode in our history.
1: You find there were political reasons that motivated the genocide.
3: What I tried to do in the book is answer one question. What was the mental state of the perpetrators of the young Turk government at the beginning of World War I that would lead them to carry out this kind of disastrous policy of literally physically eliminating one of their or two of their uh, Populations—that is, the Armenians and their related Christian uh, brethren, the Assyrians—they saw an uh, what they considered an internal enemy within the country that was allied with great powers outside, most importantly Russia and Britain. And because of that connection, the foreign powers could use the Armenians as a wedge to pry apart the Ottoman Empire, and that was something that the government of the Ottoman Empire was not willing to do, and that irritated them terribly. In time, they developed what I would call an idea of the Armenians as an existential threat that had to be eliminated in order to preserve the empire and what they imagined to be the Turkish nation within it. Then in 1913, the most militant faction of the Young Turks consolidated its power in a bloody coup d'etat. Those are the guys who actually carried out the genocide itself in 1915 and 1916, a revolutionary act, and change the demography and make it more Muslim and more Turkish.
1: Why do you think the Turkish government has resisted so strongly to admitting to this?
3: I think it gets deep into the way the Turks see their own identity as a nation. If the genocide is recognized, then you're saying to every Turkish child in school, not what you're teaching them today, you would be saying, actually, our state, our republic, is built on a foundational crime, the physical elimination of hundreds of thousands of people who used to live on these lands for millennia. And also, along with that, the forced assimilation of hundreds of thousands of women and children into Islamic families who have lost also their cultural identity. That's almost too much uh, to accept.
1: Hitler, of course, very famously said uh, when he was talking about eliminating the Jews, who will remember the Armenians?
3: Yes. So the suppression of the memory and knowledge of genocide only feeds into those reactionary imperialist nationalist forces that will carry out such policies in the future, always in the name of nation-making and national security.
1: On the other hand, Germany today and Germany in recent histories, they've done a remarkable job of admitting their culpability. So what do you think the difference is?
3: I think the difference, obviously, is that Germany was defeated fully in World War II, and it took a long time. For them to finally come to the conclusion that the Holocaust was a colossal crime and that they should expiate their own guilt, memorialize what happened, teach it to their children. But with the Turks, you see, the Ottoman Empire was defeated in the war. But then the Turks won their liberation struggle and founded a state that then intentionally tried to forget what happened just before they founded that state.
1: Moving forward, you've marked the 100th anniversary. of what is next? I think
3: this is a real turning point. I think that the fact that the Pope himself, in a grand statement, the European Parliament, various governments uh, have looked at these events, there's no longer uh, really any possibility of saying this is controversial or didn't happen, that's really important. Maybe now Armenians who have lived with these open wounds, these festering wounds for a hundred years, can begin to heal and can begin to think about other aspects of their history. That's, that's a really good thing. But as the historians and as people, or Jews around the world say, you can forgive, but you don't forget. Uh, we will never forget what happened. And it's important not to forget.
1: Okay. Ron Suni, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you. It was really good.
1: I've been speaking with Ronald Grigor Suni. His latest book is, They Can Live in the Desert But Nowhere Else, A History of the Armenian Genocide. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. We'll take a quick break and then return with music from the birthday girl, Barbara Streisand. Welcome back to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. It's time for your international arts datebook tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane
0: Brown. An early celebration of Frank Sinatra's 100th birthday begins this weekend in the late legends hometown of Hoboken, New Jersey. The Hoboken Historical Museum is throwing a big bash called the My Way Gala to raise money for a special Frank exhibit later this year. Fans of the 1960s TV classic The Twilight Zone are invited to a new exhibit in Binghamton, New York, the hometown of host Rod Serling. A collection of Twilight Zone memorabilia is on display at the Bundy Museum of History and Art. To London, England, where the epic musical love story Miss Saigon is on stage. The tragic tale of a young girl who falls in love with an American G.I. is at the Prince Edward Theatre. And in Rome, see one of the largest and most extensive presentations of the work of Giorgio Morandi, who specialized in still-life paintings. The exhibition is at the Complesso del Vittoriano. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Book. This week, the iconic diva Barbara Streisand
1: celebrated her 73rd birthday. Throughout her career, she's taken on roles as a singer, songwriter, actress, director, writer, composer, producer, designer, author, photographer, and activist. She spent her birthday attending the Women in the World Summit in New York City. During an onstage discussion, Streisand said she thinks women are still viewed as second-class citizens and that it's still kind of a boys' club, whether in politics or the workplace. She also voiced her support for Hillary Clinton as the next President of the United States. Clinton was the summit's guest of honor. Right now, we'll hear one of Streisand's signature tunes. It's the title track from her 1973 film, Here Is The Way We Were. That was Barbara Streisand with The Way We Were. Streisand celebrated her 73rd birthday on Friday. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Come back next week to find out how the truth about sugar has been sugar-coated.
0: You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. executive producer Moses Snymer. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program Director, John Bandreel. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.